wow. <clears throat> what a weekend. Yo, everybody, it's Devin again. Devin Townsend podcast number five. This one is about Teria. Yep, you thought I was rambling before. Well, buckle up for the beginning of this one. 2002? 2001? I don't remember. In that vicinity. So how you holding out? Everybody doing okay? I mean, considering the circumstances? I mean, I can't imagine that uh, anybody is doing particularly well at this point. I see the stats of depression and I see the stats of suicide and, and things such as this. And I also heard this particular period of time referred to as the Great Pause, which I think is interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, I know for myself and probably for, for many of us, there's been this sense of perpetual overwork, the combination of job, emails, family, and the, the repercussions of having to take care of all these things often puts people, I know myself, in a position where you feel like, I just need a break. I just want a break. And then out of the blue, we're given one. However, I think a lot of what it is that we miss during this time is the option. And I think it's, it's an interesting time for, for self-examination or self-reflection. Perhaps it's a better way to look at it. And when I started these podcasts, I didn't realize that there would be the amount of people paying attention to them that there has been. And it's not a ton of people, clearly. But I've been getting emails from friends of mine or co-workers of mine or people who I haven't seen in a while. And they say, hey, I've been listening to this. And I think um, that led me to fearing it over the past few days. When we first started doing these podcasts, the Royal We... I kind of went into it with the assumption that these periods of time which have resulted in me being in a place in my life now that is productive and positive were things that were just so crazy and difficult at the time. And I think I have proactively over the years gone out of my way to not talk about them, to not bring them up. It's almost like just by not thinking about it, by pretending it didn't exist, then I could gaslight myself. I don't know. But I also recognized after doing the infinity one and then the physicist one, that if I just stopped doing them, the same thing I feared at the time that I massively went out of my way during the Devon Townsend project, Empath, and a lot of the projects that I've been doing since this particular period of my life. That if I left this hanging, there's no conclusion to it. 
And I remember at the time during Physicists and, and during the chaos of infinity, thinking that this was dysfunctional to the point where I need to conclude it. I need to find a way through this. Even for the sake of the people who participate in the music. And I'm going to ramble a fair amount here. I've been thinking about accountability since this weekend has gone by. This whole weekend. I've been thinking about... Well, what brought it on? I've been thinking about the nature of, of why people do things for attention. My first reaction to that is confusion or anger or frustration or whatever. But then I think about myself and I think about artists in general and I think, well, why do we do these things? Why do artists go out of their way to make music publicly, make art publicly? If at least a large portion of your reasons for doing it wasn't to be seen or to be validated, you would just not release it. I mean, it's as simple as that. So I think just the, the act of releasing this bears some degree of scrutiny. Why do you do this? And is this just maybe negative attention seeking? But I guess the difference is, if I was to think about it, would be what your motivation is. What's your motivation for seeking attention? In the case of professional famous people, where there's no motivation, people who are famous for being famous. I mean, in that case, I think we're looking at a pure need for attention, a pure need for validation. Maybe there is not enough attention paid as a child or, or what have you. But I think if you are an artist or a musician, the reason that you put these things into the public sphere and clearly are interested in the attention that it brings, even if the version of you who created the career for you was a 17-year-old version of whoever a 50-year-old you is now, it's still you're still sort of subject to that initial motivation. And I think the difference between those two things is there's a purpose behind the attention that comes from making music, making art, making a painting, making a movie. There's a purpose there. So I don't think it's strictly based on, on a need to be validated as a person. And why did I start thinking about this? Well, I think after the Infinity podcast, when I had divulged publicly a lot of things that I've held on to for years, for a number of reasons, and then I recognized the next day, I was like, oh shit, oh, I said these things in public, oh my god. So I sort of scrambled to get the physicist one done, because I think physicist, as dark of a time as that still was, there's a very real conclusion to that whole 
period that came with physicists. There was a real sense of, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I fucked up. Oh, I had no idea. And in fact, I've gotten comments online and emails from friends of mine even, which is something I had no anticipation of, of people saying, hey, you know, during that Infinity podcast, there were certain things that you were saying that resonated very deeply with a similar situation that I went through. And I had no, no understanding of the depths that that kind of messiah complex went to in society. And it's much more prevalent than I ever thought, even with people I know. And I wonder how much of that we're taught as a, as a Western society. I wonder how much of that entitlement that now during this period of forced isolation or enforced isolation, we're having to come to terms with. If as a Western culture, we've spent several generations being told that not only can you be whatever you want to be, you can do whatever you want to do, but it's your right to have that taken away to a certain extent. Perhaps shines a light on the fact that that was all a facade in the first place. Maybe based on years and years and years of, of maybe no war, no famine. We've been very fortunate. And I like to think that the process that these records have taken um, has resulted in a tangible path through the work that there is a conclusion that is worth me continuing these podcasts for. If I had just left it at the end of Physicist or Infinity, one thing that I've feared for so many years is people following me through the work. You know, I, I, uh, I remember when I was first coming out of this, this phase when we had just had children and I was going to AA meetings and, and things such as this. And we were talking about fears and I said, well, you know, one of my biggest fears, or at the time, certainly, is that I've created all this work that is unhinged in so many ways. Even though my intention was, was pure, I wanted to, I wanted to demonstrate through the work as specifically as I could based on whatever pre-existing mental condition. I wanted to represent it accurately. But it wasn't until Infinity, Physicist, Alien, that I recognized that art, music, has a very real call and response with your audience. And I remember saying at these meetings, I, I was like, man, I'm so uncomfortable with people deifying artists. I'm so uncomfortable with people looking at, for example, Infinity or Physicist or, or any number of these records that I had done before I had a, a real practical relationship with accountability as an artist. And I'm just afraid that people will use that as a rationale to do things based on romanticizing the process. I hate the idea of that. 
I hate the idea of that. And a lot of times that gets demonstrated when people, in my experience, feel that there's a synchronicity between themselves and an artist. Like, I don't like singing on other people's music. I don't like participating with other people's music. And that's just my prerogative. It has nothing to do with the quality of other people's work. I just don't want to do it. Guess I get asked for reasons for that too. And I don't know. But I guess the easiest way for me to summarize it is just my process, which I'm hoping to demonstrate through these podcasts, are very clearly with an objective that is separate from, you know, scene points or whatever goes into, you know, we should all show up on each other's records and, and appear in magazines together. I mean, I've done it, of course, but the people who have, the people whom I've done it with are more often than not friends. And the reasons why we can participate musically with each other is because we can participate socially with each other, or we've known each other for a while. It's much more about a conversation than it is about synchronicity. And I remember saying that at the meeting, this is prior to the Devin Townsend project, which fast forwarding a bit was when I started trying to retroactively explain this period and this work. And the lady just laughed and said, oh yeah, yeah, the synchronicity freaks. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, the people who feel that because they find patterns in things, that there is a synchronicity that is undeniable or metaphysical or whatever. And um, there's a song about that on key because that was right at the same time that I started going through that, the song Synchronicity Freaks. So why do I bring it up? I keep going in circles. My conversational style is just shooting in all directions in hopes that I can get back to my original point 12 minutes later. <laughs> I bring it up because during the Physicist podcast, that was the first podcast of these that I thought I would do some legwork prior to discussing the record by listening to it. And by listening to it, I listened to the lyrics, I read the lyrics, I went through the booklet, and in a lot of ways I felt like I relived it. And what was surprising to me was how passionate I got about the lyrics. And I was taken back by my interest in it all. I started wondering whether maybe my interest in the work that I've done is some sort of holdover of that delusional sense of self-importance. I hear myself reciting the lyrics like I'm reciting some piece of, you know, scripture. But I think there's a real difference upon thinking about it between being proud of what you do and being delusional. And I've been so afraid of being perceived like I was back in that whole era, that I think the self-deprecation in my work has come to the forefront in some instances much more prevalently than it should have. So I decided to keep going 
with these podcasts. My objective is to be rational about this process so that by the time it gets to Empath, which will be the last one, well, potentially, that process will be much more clear. I think that the artistic mindset that inspires these things within me and that artistic mindset that was a culmination of a lot of circumstances that resulted in infinity and, and all these things are clearly much more common than I had anticipated with people, whether or not you're an artist, whether or not you're a musician. I think that perhaps what it shines light on in my estimation here is something that this quarantine period may well have the ability to help us with because it 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 kind of it kind of levels the playing field in a lot of ways a lot of times i perhaps due to the by la process have been antagonistic towards bands or artists who portray themselves as superheroes. And when I see bands do that, I think, oh, just fucking get fucked, man. And now that everybody's kind of stuck at home and people are, you know, more viewed as, as the scrubby pedestrian nerds that they are rather than this meticulously coiffed version of themselves that they have spent their entire career protecting any other view from being seen you know it's like you see these rich and famous musicians slash actors slash artists who for years we just see at the grocery store you know, in the National Enquirer, the cover, and everybody's, you know, what is Prince Giebelsnarf doing today? You know, 12 ways that Susan Longbottom sets up her days with her 43 chihuahuas or whatever. And I think as a culture, we maybe have grown to be comfortable with that them and us distinction. The idea that there is a them and there is an us. Maybe on some level it gives us comfort. Maybe on some level that's the same reason why a lot of people get very interested in any number of things. Religion or conspiracies or flat earth or, or anything. I mean, maybe there's this sense that if we accept the fact that this is all fundamentally chaos and we have no control over it, then that puts the accountability squarely on our shoulders. But if you can say, well, it's not my fault because X, you know, I'm being held down by X, or the reason why I choose not to, to strive for something that I've been told my whole life is beyond my capacity, my capabilities, is because I'll clearly never be like Steve Jobs or 
Susan, whatever I said her last name was, Longbottom. You know, and I think that it's convenient to have that as a scapegoat to say, I can never be that type of person because they're fundamentally different than us. And in the same way, I feel like I had alluded to in the, in the physicist podcast, the assumption that if you're crazy and no one can reach you, then that can be a very easy thing to default to. And I think that over the course of this career, that the Devin Townsend project was instrumental in me being able to explain what these motivations were metaphorically and perhaps through this podcast now literally there is an opportunity with this flattened curve of the us and them dichotomy to be able to say now that maybe it is up to us maybe it is my responsibility and when you're in a time of challenging circumstances. I was going to say strife, but more just this. Somebody alluded to the fact that being quarantined is like being in a really nice jail. <laughs> you get all your toys, right? But even at that, it's weird. And we're all in a situation that is unprecedented in every way. In every way. And there's no information that we can be guided by. There's so much dissension between people that you don't know what to believe. You don't know if you should wear a mask. You don't know if you should wash the bags of food. You don't know if you should take your shoes off. All these things. And that as this hum in the background of this just unprecedented strangeness that we're all having to go through at this point is unnerving but it's in those times where i think any progress that we've made on a personal level is best gauged in a vacuum it's easy to remain calm and say well listen all the meditation and all the exercise and all the abstaining from all these things that i know cause me problems see i've got it together because a scenario came up and i was able to cope but within a framework of this coronavirus where it's this abstraction that we're all left to our own devices and our own families and our own neurosis to contend with this is the time when you can say okay this is where i'm at in a practical way this is where I'm at. This is how much of those fears that I have maybe been able to shelve for all those years are actually very skin deep. And for me, I'm now in a situation where when this started, my reaction was, okay, I get to write. And I've got all this shrapnel music that's been kicking around that I enjoy, but it's not indicative of where I'm at. And that was the Quarantine Project songs, Call of the Void and 
honey bunch and all these things. And although there's a bunch more of that, it became clear to me very quickly that I use work in a lot of ways to cover up a lot of things. That addictive mechanism that I think can be adhered to any number of things, sex, drugs, alcohol, fear. I think a lot of that can be and has been for a lot of our society migrating to work. So in order to put it out of your mind, there's this socially acceptable vessel that we can throw all that into. Well, I can't think about that. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. But then I realized through that quarantine project, those initial songs, I'm making myself busy for something that I don't have a lot of need to do. I think on one level, I like to assume that my work can help people specifically with this lineage of albums that again left untended left undisclosed left undiscussed i think can be uh, harmful if people romanticize it and it's in my best interests as a person to say this is exactly how this happened this is exactly where it led me and through the work, this is where I am now. And where I am now is something that I'm very proud of. And it's something that I will, in a heartbeat, recommend to people, much more so than any of this old stuff. And I'm not talking about musically, because this leads me to Teria. City, Ocean Machine, Physicist, those three records... Well, oh no, there's four. Physicist, Infinity, Ocean Machine, City. Those four records. That's it. All the rest of the stuff is after that. I remember when Teria started thinking, I have nothing more to say. I've said everything that as an artist I need to say. And to this day, I feel that way. To this day, I feel that way. Every record after Physicist is a postscript. And I remember lyrically during Teria alluding to that. In fact, there was a lyric in Tiny Tears that I ended up taking out and it wasn't because I had any problems with it, but just because it was too many words. I became very conscious of the vocals in Terria. And the lyric was, um, I feel restless and old fashioned um, with all the taste, but half the passion. And even then I said, you know, I'm 29 years old and I'm a million miles away. 29, it's 20 years ago. Teria. Even then, I recognized that I was done in a lot of ways. So when I think about attention, when I think about the motivating factors that 
compel me to continue with doing this. I think the attention may have been something that started this. I think that as a child, perhaps I was insecure enough that, and antisocial enough, mind you, that having validation from strangers seemed incredibly alluring because there's no risk there on a personal level. You can actively portray yourself as the type of character that you want people to see through Pro Tools, Photoshop. For many years, I would go through every interview I did. And I know a lot of people still do. Because in my case, I just didn't think that I was worthy of love. And in order to accept anything, it had to be through me going so far over the top with doing things for people, people pleasing, that I felt lost within this construct of my own design. I felt that, and even with the career, I just wanted to make people happy, but it, it had nothing to do with altruism. It just had to do with needing that attention. Remember a buddy of mine saying at one point, daddy didn't play catch with me enough, <laughs> which is an analogy for the actual mechanism at work, which of course is different in everybody. And I can admit freely that the career that I have now is one that was started with that as the catalyst. Unconsciously, I felt the need to people please. And I felt the need to have my emotional capacity validated by people. And if it was strangers, it's, it's easier because then there's this kind of idolatry that comes with it that often happens when you don't really know somebody. You know, it's easy to assume that somebody is without fault if what you have an emotional investment in is something that you've projected onto. Like, this person has made a song that made me feel this fantastic way. It summarized exactly where I was at at this particular point in my life. Therefore, this person is without fault, beyond reproach. And a lot of times that old adage of never meet your heroes is more based on the fact that perhaps that us or them mentality that we are sold is only able to function if you're able to remove the humanity from the person and say, oh, well, I met him and he was an asshole, you know, as opposed to I came up to him while he was on the phone with his mother who was in the hospital and I kept bugging him and he told me to go fuck myself. That guy's an asshole. There's this sense that 
that humanity is what is uncouth when it comes to what we need from artists. And so as I grow and I've become who I am as a human being, I've had to make some hard decisions within myself when it comes to my output. It's not in my best interest to stand on a pedestal and say, okay, audience, okay, people whom support me, my work, my business, my family, my livelihood. I ran out of things to say after physicist. Everything that I felt I needed to say that was rooted to that sense of quote-unquote divine inspiration was purged by the time the year 2000 came around. But please continue to support my work. So at that point, I think you have to make a couple of decisions. Number one, I think you have to redefine the role of music, in my case, in your life. And then once you've done that, I think, again, in my case, I had some hard lessons in accountability. When back then, due to strapping, infinity, all these things, people made assessments on what I was and what the nature of the work was to the point where that music became soundtrack to things that were in opposition to my intention as a person. And that ended up being alien, which we'll get into. And I think, okay, well now, if I'm going to continue this, I need to figure out why I do this because if it's for money it's not interesting enough for me to do and the ideas that I have musically that still interest me because I still love music although my intention my intention changed 180 after physicist it changed 180 Terria being the first record Although I still love music, I get bored of it now. The things that interest me about music are no longer the things that interested me in the beginning. With Ocean Machine, I could play a big suspended second power chord with basic drums, echoey guitars, and a big chorus, and that would be enough to interest me enough to do a whole litany of work based off of that sound with strapping at that time the idea of simplifying it here blasting drums heavy metal guitars sort of modern production and and samples was enough for me to to be creatively stimulated to see a record through to its end that's all i needed back then People often ask me, you know, what would be able to make you money is if you made a pop record, because we hear songs like Life, Spirits Will Collide, Christine, Sit in the Mountain, Stagnant. You could put together a group of songs like that and make a lot of money. 
And I think I'm not interested enough in doing that consistently for 10 songs to happen at a single period of, of time for me to be emotionally engaged enough in it. People will hear. And I think if there's anything that has allowed me past physicist to keep an audience is the fact that I consistently mine my motivations so that when I do choose to do something, ghost, casualties of cool, empath, the Hummer, any of these things, it's because I think there's a tangible feeling from the audience that I, as a creator, was interested in that. There's always going to be people that feel unequivocally that their opinion is truth. And it's easy to be frustrated by that when people say to me, this is the reason why I think the new record that you've done is incorrect. This is the reason why I find fault in your work. And it's not in my opinion, it's an unequivocal critique. And I think to myself, I think to myself, fair enough, that's your opinion. But I also think to myself, because I have people who have been willing to support me, the thing that I can offer now in opposition to that need for attention that drove much of my early work, the thing I can offer now is sincerity. So oftentimes, what sincerely interests me now are things that are convoluted, melodies that are unconventional, choirs or orchestrations or, or things like this. One could say that's a taste thing, but I don't listen to that. I think if it was a taste thing, it would be something that I would be participating in all the time as an audience member. In my off time, I would be listening to things that sound like the musical ideas that become intriguing to me later on in my career where I'm at now, but I don't. The things that I spend my time listening to musically are just random stuff. I tend to like quiet music. I tend to like old music. I mean, I love music. But I also feel that there's been a, a shift in my creative consciousness that now I don't feel this need when I hear something I like to think, oh, I need to do something like that now. I used to feel that. I used to feel I'm listening to a, an electronic song that I think is conceptually and sonically fantastic. So therefore, clearly, I need to do that. And I think that goes back now to the frustration I feel when people think you as an artist are doing something that they enjoy, therefore you must work together. I think that's indicative of something that is no longer part of my intention. Now when I hear something that I enjoy, 
My first thought is, thank God I don't have to do that. Because the levels that I've taken my work have been through such intense scrutiny. And rest assured, when I say that my intention changed 180 after Physicist, by no means does that mean the intensity in which I carry out these processes has changed. It's gotten even more obsessive, even more intense in terms of the the creation and the and the analysis and, and all this. It's just that my reason for doing it now is to chase the sincerity rather than chase the approval. And that puts you in an interesting place as an artist as well. So these podcasts give me an opportunity to be sincere about parts of my life that I would have soon, just as soon forgotten. But I think having a loudspeaker as an artist, having an audience, and I'm very fortunate that much of the audience who is chosen graciously to support me is rational. However, I think that that loudspeaker tends to stick in the past more than you know. And so it's important for me in this quarantine period one of forced self-reflection after literally decades of going bananas, maybe subconsciously just trying to avoid thinking about the past. You know, it's like I haven't had a week, let alone months, to just stop without this impending, okay, well, you can chill, but you got to get ready for this tour. You're going to be leaving in two weeks. Yes, I've chosen to do these, these concerts from home. Yes, I've chosen to do these podcasts. But it's not new material. In fact, when I was confronted with the idea of making new material, I realized that I don't know where I'm at. Teria began... Teria began on the heels of the gray period of my life that was physicist. Physicist was the most bleak of all of these periods. It wasn't the most toxic. It wasn't the most frightening. But it was the most bleak. And during that whole time, I didn't want to let strapping go. I think it was one of these situations where I just couldn't make my mind up. You know, there's a line or two, at least, in Terrier, please make your mind up. And it was almost like committing to either thing seemed like you were shutting the door on an entire, an entire universe that you don't know if that's the right decision specifically 
when the past and doing that type of music had been demonstrated to you that that is a huge part of you. As much as I can prattle on about the fear and the motivation and, and what have you, when I was making strapping, I did it really well. That was authentic. It's coming from a place of authenticity. So it almost seemed that by shutting that completely out of my life, it didn't seem right. It didn't seem like that was what I should be doing. It wasn't until empath that I recognized that as opposed to an aberration of my creative mind that was separate from me, that was almost indicative of possession rather than that anger was a tangible part of my experience as a child that I was afraid of because I never learned how to contend with conflict in a healthy way. I never learned how to express anger in a healthy way. Therefore, that repression of anger became something that I viewed as an enemy. And when I was doing city and, and heavy is a really heavy thing, I hadn't gone that far into the process. I hadn't had those moments, either synthetically or naturally, that thrust me into analysis of that. So when it came to Teria, I was confused. I was like, I don't know what I should do. I don't want to let these guys go. I don't want to let strapping go in case I choose that. But I certainly can't do it because look what it has resulted in. Look at what that lack of control resulted in, in infinity. Look at that. I was still so mortified that that part of me that had been taught since a very young age that any decisions that I make were beyond reproach was still flabbergasted, almost looking for a reason, just like, no, 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 no. There must be some mistake. I, I, I That couldn't have been me. But by the time Terrier came around, there was a sense of acceptance through that depression where I was like, all right, <laughs> all right, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe that age old belief that I am one of them as opposed to one of us was a fallacy. So during the physicist time, when I had willingly gone to a psychiatric institution to deal with this situation I had caused for myself. I recognized, as I said, that being face to face with people who were medically and clinically unable to do anything but have to deal with legitimate mental illness. I recognized, oh my God, I've been so selfish. So I had ticked the box for a number of psychological uh, criteria that put me as a bipolar. One of the reasons why that diagnosis came about was when I was brought to 
a psychiatrist with my family and my wife and they all sat me down and in front of this psychiatrist I was made to answer questions but in hindsight I think I was flattered by the attention so I said several things in that interview that were hyperbolic one of which was when I was asked what I considered humans to be, I said, oh, we're talking meat. Why did I say that? It seemed dramatic, and I had read it in a short story, the name of which I don't remember. And I remember when I answered that question to the psychiatrist, I felt a glow of pride, very childish, just like, yeah. Wasn't that clever? See how far above everybody I am? And so he wrote down, considers people to be talking meat. He is a danger to himself and is a danger to others. And that's when they suggested I go in. And so when you listen to Earth Day, because after all, we're just talking meat. And music, what is music? Well, at this point with Teria after physicist where my interpretation of music up to this point was that it was you're doing God's work by the time Terrier came around and music well it's just entertainment folks so I was prescribed a number of psychiatric medications I was prescribed antipsychotics I was prescribed antidepressants. I was on, I forget the ratio, but one called Epivel, one called Zyprexa, which was responsible for a lot of the physical changes, and Wellbutrin, and I had to take them daily. In fact, without the Epivel, I couldn't sleep past a certain amount of time and the change in me whether or not my diagnosis was accurate whether or not as I had said in the beginning about how I eventually went to a psychiatrist and weaned myself off of these drugs whether or not my diagnosis was accurate that I was clinically bipolar these medications that I went on saved my life at the time in ways that if for no other reason allowed me to see what I had been doing and I remember thinking of the idea of taking medications as being a failure like as as a human being as a spiritual entity as a finger of the universal consciousness or whatever the idea that I need help to do this that I need help to sleep that I need help with my mind it's absurd absurd but I think one of the reasons why I thank the people in my life so much is they didn't lie to me they told me how much I had hurt them 
And at that point, even if it was just enough for me to agree to take those medications, the change was within a week. And I went from being this depressed, you know, fallen, divine musician, blah, 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 to being a person that was just like, oh my God, where am I? How did I end up here? What happened? And so for Teria, a lot of my reparations for that period involved trying to reach out to people. I think Terrier was the first album where I started to grow up. I think up to that point, there was a lot of childishness, clearly, but there was also a lot of petulance, a lot of poor me that went into it. And Terrier was the first album where I was like, oh, um, okay. <laughs> Looking around at the people and just even being told what I had done with a new frame of mind, I was like, oh shit. Okay. All right. And I remember specifically a friend saying when I had gone down the path with him of doing the poor me thing with him. And by that, I meant, oh, I can't believe that I hurt these people I cared about. Oh, I can't believe that that I did this and I feel so bad and oh my 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 wife and my mother and my friends and this this guy who I've had in my life my, and I told him that he couldn't be around me and oh I'm so oh my god he was just like you know what you need to fucking grow up and I was like excuse me and he said all you're doing right now is you're you're jerking off in this misery you've got a lot that you need to do You've got a lot of things that you can still say and do musically. And on some level, he was responsible to some degree for me saying, okay, well, how can I utilize my career from this point on to be of service to people? And by that, I'm not trying to portray my work as being of any significance, really. It's just, this is what I do. I spent all that time learning how to do that. This is what I'm qualified to do. Yes, maybe my psychology had and has changed to the point where I'm not as comfortable being seen, where maybe I'm more insular and introverted than is advisable for a career as public as this. But that being said, this is what I have chosen. This is what my skill set is. And this isn't a one-way street, as in simply by actualizing these, these pieces of work in the past that were rooted in something that you now recognize the 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 dysfunction of and that's not to say that they were good or bad or otherwise i'm just talking about as a human being i recognize in that process where the dysfunction was 
it's not a one-way street. However, you can choose to make it a one-way street. You could choose just to say, no more, that's it, and then leave it. I could choose to say, even with these podcasts, no more, and just leave it. And then leave it some sort of romantic story. But my choice to try to, at least, be of some service is to utilize this trajectory and to utilize this platform that I have to say, okay, well, how can we help? And I feel the need to say that to answer 35 minutes later my initial query of, is the reason that I do this now for the attention? And I truly believe that the attention that comes from this is a side effect of recognizing that I, I'm qualified now to speak. I'm qualified to pontificate on a lot of things that may be more common to the artistic sentiment and the artistic mindset than perhaps I had previously thought it could be. And so Terria became this album of just blurry, medicated. It was like happy, but it was a synthetic happy. And for every psychiatric pill I took at the time, I also smoked the equivalent amount of weed. And I remember thinking at the time, I can't make up my mind which direction I want to go. I don't want to make up my mind. Don't make me choose. And so my loophole in my mind was, okay, well, I'll do it both. Now I'm at a place again, after empath, where I think during Terry, I was on the right path, but it wasn't about drugs ultimately because it's a synthetic thing. So the psychiatric medications and the dope mixed together just made me like sort of blissfully apathetic. So I found myself in this house and I had given myself this really conservative hairdo and I had bought in really conservative clothes, beige. I hadn't left strapping, chose instead to do a tour across Canada, opening up for friends of ours in a band called The Smalls, which I loved and suggest you check them out if you haven't. And out there in the prairies, in this newly sort of conservative mindset that I was in, I found that the idea of beige and the earth and this kind of misty version of reality became very endearing to me. And Terria came while we were in the middle of the prairies in a van. I remember thinking, oh, that's the next record. It's called Terria. And it looks like this. It looks like the prairies. Even the song Canada, Ontario, 
is basically about that whole idea. It's this version of myself that was too medicated to be angry, yet I was really still the same person. You take that unbridled, petulant, childish fury that I was able to to demonstrate during City and all that, and then you put it on a whole mess of psychiatric drugs, and then compound that with a whole mess of marijuana, and then lines like, nobody's here. That's what that song's about. I feel like there's no one here. I'm 29 years old and I'm a million miles away. And I remember being in the house all of a sudden. We had this dog named Happy, who was the least happy dog one could ever imagine. He was a seven-year-old beagle that had been raised, unbeknownst to us, in a Cantonese family, who taught him all the commands in Cantonese. And so he didn't understand a thing we said. We got him as a rescue. And he was just this miserable dog named Happy. And I think that was possibly the best analogy for where I was at at that point. I was this miserable dog named Happy. <laughs> In the song Mountain, you hear him because he got cancer right at the time and we had to put him down. And of course, he was our dog, as miserable as he was. It's, you know, if you have to put a dog down, it's it's devastating. So in the song Mountain, you hear him. We're saying, you want some supper? And he's like, go! And in the background, you've got these lurching chords. Do, do, da, do, 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 da, do. That was the first song I wrote for Terrier. And that was the first piece of music that came for this album that made me excited. There were other things that were, you know, floating around at the time, universal and things like this that ended up as a B-side. But Mountain was the first song that I started feeling interest in. And the things about Mountain that I found interesting, and the reason why that remains one of my favorite songs in my entire catalog, is that melodically, it's wrong in a way. The clash of the melody with the chords and how the fifths are and, and, and everything in the, in the root was just not right. Yet, by force and by nonchalance, it ended up being something that to the ear was acceptable to me. And that summarized again this period. So here I was back home. I had gone through this big period with my significant other and I had gone through this big period with the bands and the friends and now here we are on the other side of it and I'm behaving myself and I look like an accountant and although internally I was just stirred up like the weirdest martini you could imagine it was fine. And that's what the combination of all of that plus those drugs did to me. I was fine. And I'm of two minds of that. Because on one side, I feel 
there's a lack of real me that was able to get through that gauze. Yet, it was through the prescription that snapped me out of this delusion that I had been in for years, that I was then able to proceed in life and get to the point where I'm at now, where I'm very functional. And although some people may argue it, very sane. Without that period, without that prescription, without that medication, without these things, I would have never learned. So that first song, it was almost like this weird love song. It's like, you are so beautiful to me. <laughs> so far, I've logged so many hours with medications and the dog. <laughs> uh, so far, I've logged so many hours with medications and the dog. <laughs> Again, it's literal. And then in my best death metal voice, I'm like, suffer. <laughs> and at the end, two medications and a dog. Right? Two medications and a dog. You've got the psychiatric and you've got the, uh, you've got the weed. And so what I would do is at the end of Mountain, it just goes into this cloud, this blur. And because happy, the Cantonese dog was in our life. I had, you know, the Cantonese voices or Mandarin voices in the mist after Mountain explodes. But the whole tempo of Terria is just lugubrious. The album starts with Olives, and that song I wrote at the hostel in Australia at the same time that I had written Bad Devil and Soul Driven Cadillac. And I remember it was me and Gene and Jed and, and Byron and Ross and a, a bunch of people, AJ. And while we were in the hostel, we were all just smoking lots of dope. And then every time a car drove past the window, as I was playing guitar, I would crescendo my part. And I thought it was a really cool effect. So when you hear olives, that was based on that experience. And the whole idea with olives, what's that about? It's about have another drink. The whole Terria period is almost, it's, it's this, it's this comfortable prison. It's this, you're fine with the apathy. Pour your drink. <laughs> Earth Day. That's another example of it. You know, you better not ever think straight into the drink. Get out of my mind. You know, because there may not be another way. What is it? I don't remember. Is there no other way we could do this another day? I found God or I saw God. <laughs> and then the chorus for Earth Day, you know, it's your birthday. 
It's my worst fucking day. And it's, uh, you know, the whole thing is about being a good boy. Eat your beets. Take out the recycling. Take out the garbage. And then every now and then you'd have this, this part of you just trying to get through. It's like, but fuck it. Fuck it. I really don't care. Someone listen to me. <laughs> just shut the fuck up. And I think the profanity on Teria was a very important part for me. Because I remember every time I would hit a lyrical, like, stumbling block with Teria, I just thought it was funny just to say, fuck off, or shut the fuck up, or something. Nobody's here. I think, I know, I guess, I know. Fuck off. And, you know, why can't I remember? I think that there's a part of that album that was just a delicious blur that was hand-in-hand hand with this part of me that's just saying, I gotta get out of this. I can't stay here. As much help as this has been for me, this is not this is not where i need to be i have to feel this i can't intellectualize emotions i have to feel them deep peace that song specifically was one of the ones that i wrote on the stairs with my little zoom firebox on the inside of the album you'll see me with my tragic hair and my beige shirt and my gray strat. And this was one of the first records. Well, maybe not. Maybe Infinity was the first record where an instrument became synonymous with the, with the expression. And that gray strat did. And so I wrote all these guitar parts as opposed to the EMG 81 humbucker heavy metal sounds I wrote it all on single coil. I wrote it all on a Strat with a bar. First time ever. Same GP100 sound and, and PV5150 and all these stalwarts in terms of my, my gear arsenal. But it was now with a different instrument. It was like a country guitar. And there was, again, that kind of dichotomy of heavy metal and country guitar. You know, um passionate screaming behind the prison walls versus with, ah, fuck it, just it's all good, just take out the garbage you're fine, take care of the dog, go feed the dog, go to bed, hey look, TV show's on, you like that show, don't you? Yeah, you do alright, come on, be comfy and I really enjoyed it I think that was the most interesting part of this process is although I was painfully aware that that otherworldly sense of, of divine musical inspiration was in fact kind of bullshit. And there was certainly a part of me that was depressed by that. 
This is one of the last times, you know, the, the whole drug period for me starts winding down now. And I remember one of the last times feeling like there was this, this remorse, almost like all those fantasies, all that infinity stuff, all that city fury, all that physicist bleakness, all that stuff became these characters in this children's story. And then during Terry, I had this very tangible experience of recognizing all those things in my past as being characters that are saying, we'll miss you. And even though it had been so destructive and potentially fatal, it was almost like, it was almost like a romance had ended. And now it was, now it was just about trying to figure out through that gate, now that I had become an adult, to some degree at least, by this point, how do I quantify this? How do I progress? And I think one thing that is abundantly clear to me in hindsight is that I wasn't ready to let it go yet. I felt almost like I see a lot of this you know, everybody has to end the lockdown of coronavirus. And I think, of course, there's so many people that need to work. Everybody's going broke. I get it. But I think there's also the tendency to think, oh, okay, the curve is flattening. Therefore, we're fine. Everybody back to work. And then before you know it, it just sprouts up again. And I think that's right where I was with Terrya. I think because I had a hint of responsibility in me now. And I was able to sort of, even though in a blurry way, I was able to rationally look at myself and say, oh, okay, I understand how this happened now. But I hadn't got to the point where I was ready to commit. I didn't just break up strapping. I didn't also deal with the part of me that is strapping. I didn't give it any compassion. I viewed it as this adversary that I had to appease in a sense. And this very distinct combination of emotions became Terrier and Deep Peace was a song that I wrote in the bathroom I think there was, and there is a lot of times in records for me, feelings that uh, certain atmospheres also resonate with what created an album. Like you may have written it in a certain place, or you may have gone on a trip or done something that put you in a different frame of mind that then when a piece of music presents itself to you, you're able to draw on that experience and say, oh, right, that reminds me of the beach. That reminds me of the mountains, what have you. And with Terria, I had spent this time just trying to make myself functional, trying to make myself fit in to society now after years of just 
frankly being a fucking banana. So I had the outfit. I had the beige shirt and I had the (laughs) tragic sort of mid-length hair and everything about this was consciously me trying to understand, well, how do people live? How do we do this? And I spent a lot of time thinking in the bathtub. And Deep Peace was written in there. In fact, in the middle of Deep Peace, there's this part that goes... In that section there, you'll hear splashing in the background. It's because that whole quiet little breakdown there, after the... After that, it was all written in a white tiled bathtub. So, as is the case with a lot of these records, I I try to incorporate things that remind me of where I was when I was writing it, because it adds the feeling of authenticity to that piece of music to me. But the gestation of Deep Peace was actually much different. That song, the beginning, it's all right to cry, that section, was written during infinity. And I remember at the time feeling that when those chords came, that this would be the ideal song to be presented as the final song of the human species. Like, this is the last thing that people hear. And then, after Infinity was over, and I hadn't found a place for that piece of music, I finished it during Teria. And so the end of Deep Peace, the reprise of what was the beginning but now heavier... It's almost like it's almost like a conclusion to what started as a diluted artistic statement for me. You know, at the end, it's all right to cry. It's all right to bleed on everyone. It's okay. It's all right to die. It's all right. It's all life. We learn from everyone. So if you ever need someone, if you ever need it, man, get inside and be it, man. You know, anytime you call, it's, it's an interesting creative period for me because not only was it that collision of two things and not only was it this blurry medicated period for me, but it was the first album that I think I could define as being resolved, having some sense of surrender to it rather than feeling sorry for myself or feeling an inflated sense of self-importance or feeling that I could say whatever I wanted without it having any ramifications. This is the first record that I was like, okay, I'm okay with failing. I'm okay with this. It's not something that I need to partially due to that conversation I had with my friend, spend much more time patting myself on the back about how 
sorry I was, how upset I was. And so Teria played a pivotal role in my creative um, progression because it just had this sense of calmness to it. But it was still metal, yet it was melodically different in ways that I was interested in and not because I felt it was indicative of some divine whatever it was that was you know that was then that ship had kind of sailed and so now when something interesting came up it was more like huh that's interesting I think I can pursue that for reasons other than attention I think I can pursue that because I recognize now that although it would be convenient for me to say that the only reason I'm a musician is because I crave attention. But I think a song like Mountain, song like the middle of Deep Peace, the more orchestral section, was a moment where I said, maybe I'm a musician because simply I'm a musician. And it sounds crazy to point that out as if it was a profound realization, but in a sense it was at that point. I'd spent so much time thinking about thinking up to that point that I could and did analyze everything to the point where it no longer existed in a way. I think you can, for example, analyze your motivations for doing something for somebody helping somebody and I think that it's a tendency for people who are self-deprecating to say oh the only reason for example I helped this person is because I wanted to be the person that was seen as helping I think our insecurities can lead us to thinking about it to the point where we get to a conclusion like that as opposed to oh, you did it because it was the right thing to do as opposed to thinking, I'm a musician because I crave validation. I think Teria was the first album where I said, oh, I'm a musician because I'm a musician. And this interests me. And damn the torpedoes in a lot of ways. And there's been a couple of albums throughout my career that have allowed me to pursue that unconventional way of thinking about my work only to in every case hopefully not next one because empath was one of these records revert and i guess i could say there's been three records like that teria key and empath those were the three records where i left the comfort zone of providing something for the audience that I knew was going to be acceptable. You know, I knew that there was a certain aesthetic musically that surrounded Ocean Machine, City, you know, things like that. 
that in a pinch, if I wanted to, I could write songs like that. And that whether or not those records were true to where I was at that point, I knew that people would still accept it, whether or not it was nostalgia. And keep in mind, every record that I've done, I've put myself into. It's not like I phoned in any of these records. But when we get to records like Epic Cloud or uh, Dark Matters, records that, of course, I feel strongly about, but my motivations for them were in some way based on, okay, well, what do people want? But a record like Teria, a record like Key, and a record like Empath were done because I just thought, fuck it, this is what I want to do. For whatever reason, whatever my motivations were, are really of no significance. And in fact, I'm sure the amount that I ramble on about these things can imply to the listener that I put a sense of importance on my reasons for doing that, which I'd like to think I don't. I think the reason why I discuss this process as much as I do now is in large part due to the fact that on several occasions, my intention had been misinterpreted to the point where the music took on a life of its own in a way that I felt very uncomfortable with. You combine that with 25, 27 years in the music industry, you learn that no matter what you put out, the amount of press that we do as artists, you better know what it is that you're singing about. Because you're going to be asked those questions, and I don't really know doesn't hold a lot of water. In fact, I've tried that, to be fair. I've tried to make a record and just say, you know what? As opposed to getting deep into the motivation and, and what have you, to the point where clearly people hearing it may think, wow, this guy really loves the sound of his own voice. I tried to just say, ah, it's about what it's about. But that ended in a really ugly group of scenarios during the album SYL, which I'll discuss then, as well as a number of other situations. So I've learned by this point that although my tendency to talk about this is as much as it is with my admittedly limited vocabulary. I've been thinking that this whole time as well. I don't read a lot. I really would like to think that I would read more than I do. I just don't. I'll grapple onto a word and I'll use it 40 times in a row just because it's a new word for me. And that's frustrating as well when you feel the need to explain things as much as I do. But please don't misinterpret my need to describe this as me feeling that this work is of any more significance than any other artist's work. And I think that's one of the things that sort of threw me during the last couple of podcasts is the impression that I had put on myself that maybe I maybe I did think that still. It threw me for a loop. And doing this podcast today is actually good for me because I often find just by talking, your truth comes out. 
And this is what I feel. I feel it's important for me to discuss this because I feel that if my intention is to help, there is a tangible path, although unique, that I've taken with these records that have ended in a place where I'm at now that I think is healthy. I want to ramble. I want to talk about what comes up after Empath. It's foremost in my mind right now. But let's continue. So what the hell song is next after Deep Peace? I got to look here. Canada. Right. Canada was an interesting song. I love the fact that it references John Denver. That was a big part of my childhood. You know, Rocky Mountain High and all that. And the chords in the chorus for Canada, I just thought were lovely. Wake me, please wake me. It's cold and warm. You know, the whole idea with that song, and maybe even hearing myself say those lyrics out loud, it's maybe one of the first songs that I had committed to an album that wasn't about some sort of metaphysical delusion or fantasy or dream or, or beauty. I don't want to tar all of that with being like a delusion because a lot of it was really beautiful to me. But I think Canada was one of the first songs that I wrote that was just about stuff. <laughs> what was the, uh, what was the midsection this time I've tried to not listen to the record before so I could just focus on my memories of these songs. I think the things that I remember are more important than going through each little aspect of it. But in the midsection, there's a part that says, more than ever, I'm, I needed Mora, more than Mora means, be whatever you must be to get by. And I think the word Mora, which is a throwback to heavy is a really heavy thing on the song Critic. I need you more. I think there was a tendency when I was younger to create like fantasy characters in my own mind that were almost like friends. And that was the name of one of them. And I think that this is a throwback to that. And that starts with that child's voice before that section. And that child is me from a cassette tape that my mother had had um, saved. <laughs> Down and Under was written in Australia, hence Down and Under. <laughs> it was another situation where I wrote that one during the infinity time and I assumed that I should go to Australia and put together a drum circle and get all these people and humans together and we'll play it at the same time and but it took until Terry effort to turn into a song and, and, uh, and down and under was about Australia. Australia meant and means a huge amount to me. Just, I don't know, just the people and, and the place and the experiences that I had there and the friends that I've made there. I love Australia. Down and under was about Australia. The fluke, that song was written at the meeting that I had with inside out in Cleva, on my little Zoom fire, writing in the hotel room, in between listening to Ween records. And I like uh, 
the lyrics to that song. I am a fluke in the world. I haven't spoken a single word. In a sense, it's like nothing I've said really means much. I have to wade through the bullshit baby just to find my own vision of pearls. You know, freak, fluke, love it. <laughs> Nobody's here. I think if any song defines the Terria album, even though it's not my favorite song on the record by a long stretch, the idea of nobody's here summarizes that whole period. You know, I don't even remember the lyrics to that. Here, I got to look them up because, hang on, two seconds. All right, quick Wikipedia search has resulted in the lyrics for nobody's here. Yeah, well, see, this song was interesting because it almost is the most honest one of the whole record. Because during this time, I had a couple of friends that would come over and visit me. You know, and Beave was... He was always there at that period. You know, he really helped me out at that, at that period. In fact, that was the point where I said, you know, you should consider if you're interested being a part of a band. Because, man, he helped me out so much. I was going through a bunch of shit and he would just come hang out with me or I'd go hang out with him. And I had a bunch of other friends too, maybe two or three other friends, and they would just come by and they knew I'd gone through all this shit and they knew that I was, you know, feeling a lot of regret and remorse, but you know, I'd come over and smoke some dope and hang out and watch some TV and it was kind of cool. And that was this song. Hello, it's good to see you here. Come in, can I offer you a beer? And they say this is what it's like forever. Roll this up, it's deadly. <laughs> so we can feel like there's nobody here. Feel like there's no more fear. Want to feel like this for a year? <laughs> Just lock yourself away. Relax. It doesn't matter anyway. Because it's all a lie. It's true. I think. I guess. I know. I think. I know. Fuck off. <laughs> Why can't I remember? <laughs> Heroes, they take my breath away. Zero the dials. Bring it back to nothing. See how the breakdown breaks ground and zeros the miles. <laughs> it's like a reset, right? I feel like there's nobody here. I think that's, again, you've got Earth Day with its drama and Deep Peace with its end of the world stuff and Mountain with its holy shit, I think I love you kind of trip. <laughs> but Nobody's Here, I think, is the one that was most where I was at at that point. And as a song, I mean, it's, it's okay. I like it. But I think this is where the breakdown happens between me and maybe music fans at this point in my career is what interests me now about music is not really songs a lot of the times and if a song does interest me what interests me now is like a really well put together pop song but when it comes to music I find I just get so bored with songs that I end up doing things like Singularity or Genesis or evermore or something like that why and a lot of times people think I know what interests you but what interests me more is this period of your work for whatever reason and I can totally respect that but I also feel in line with with the honesty that I'm hoping to pursue as a creator it's in my best interest now to just follow it wherever it leads and 
a song like Nobody's Here, as much as it's melodically, melodically interesting, or certain people think that a song like Stagnant is, is really a cool song, it doesn't interest me nearly as much as some of the weirder stuff that I do now. And this is ultimately where I'm at with the moth, is trying to figure out where I'm at. There's a part of me that wants to make it this profoundly over-the-top thing, and there's a part of me that just thinks, nah, nah, just make some ambient stuff. Make something pretty. Make some meditation music for people. Play bass in a country band. But, again, my hope on a creative level is using this, this coronavirus quarantine as an opportunity for me to investigate that. I don't want to obsess about it, but it's going to happen regardless. So having some time to listen to these cogs creak and whir around as I'm talking about these old records will hopefully put me in a position that by the end I'm like, oh, okay, clearly this is what I do. Next. However, I will say, it doesn't matter. And that's fucking awesome. It's fucking awesome. I love just, just the fact that just came out of my mouth. Oh my god, that feels so good. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people want. It doesn't matter what people think is good people think is bad what matters is that you're being honest and if that leads you to terrifying heights of popularity then so be it but if it leads to you just kind of fading away and then maybe your your lineage is that other people people more suited to fame will be able to hear this and through these creative academies that I've offered or the streams where I'm showing what I do when I mix or talking about in my estimation the mistakes I made that that although perhaps interesting to me at the time and clearly I needed to make perhaps there's a word of warning that can come to others who are interested in what I do so that they can bypass that. I hope that people who are well-suited to fame hear what I do and maybe have some degree of, of influence from what I do, you know, my echoes and all that sort of stuff, and they create something that's fantastic. And if that's the way that I can help, then that's amazing to me. Because... In opposition to my intention during infinity of being the one, I realize now that my personality and my trip and my lack of desire to like participate in a lot of the shit that one needs to participate in willingly in order to be part of the scene or to, you know increase your stature to the point where you're on those magazines at the checkout with Sarah Longbottom or what have you. I just don't want, I don't want it. 
But I do think that there's a certain amount of truth that comes through this convoluted path that I've taken that can help. And to be a rung in a ladder and that ladder is going up. I'm down with that. I'm absolutely down with that. And it's preferable to me in every way rather than making strategic business and artistic decisions that put me in a position where my brand, quote unquote, raises its stature to the point where you're among the elite artists. And that's not to say that I can. I mean, I'm a 48-year-old man, bald, with fucked up teeth. My you know, market research would would perhaps contest any possibility of that happening. But my point remains. So after Down and Under, where are we here? What's next? Tiny Tears. Taken as the song Deadhead was taken from a Godflesh title. Both Tiny Tears and Deadhead were Godflesh song titles. And I think it was Tiny Tears on the Godflesh one. Spelt the same. But I like the name. And that whole idea came also from the Popeye musical. That melody. But that was almost a summary to that whole thing. Baby, baby, don't you cry. Wipe away the tears now from your eye. I'm sorry that I made you cry. I can't believe I'm just an ordinary guy. (laughs) There's a lot of things. I mean, if you're interested, read the lyrics. And I think after you've heard these podcasts, you know, when one is one and all these things. My favorite lyric on Tiny Tears, though, is the end. I can't believe I made you cry. I can't believe I made you cry. And then the last line is, I can't believe this makes you cry. And I love that. That's kind of, that also kind of summarizes the whole Terrier experience. This whole, oh my God, I am so mortally sorry in line with physicist. I'm just, you know, on my knees, hands to the heaven. I'm so sorry. But also combined with, really? Really? I made you cry? Really? (laughs) Uh, But I think the whole idea of, I can't believe I'm just an ordinary guy. I like that because, you know, it's it's a double entendre as well. Like, I refuse to believe I'm just an ordinary guy. But I also can't believe I'm just an ordinary guy. <laughs> Stagnant. That's a song I get requests for quite frequently. And to be honest, um, it's one of my least favorite songs on the Terrier session. Tired of the way I'm feeling every day. It was just a song. It was a melodic one. And I think the fact that I feel the way that I do about it is a good way to end that record as well. And humble, maybe it's more the sentiment than anything else. Well, my friends, that was Terrier. 
And next, I'd like to think it got better. But sometimes it gets worse before it gets better, and it certainly got worse. But we'll get there. And then by the time we get to Empath, hopefully it will make sense. I don't feel I need to say this, but I'm going to say it. Please don't follow any of the mistakes that I did. Don't mix alcohol or drugs with psychiatric medication. It can kill you. You know, if you're going through problems or situations where you are able to recognize that it is causing you real problems, please get help. Please look at this whole process here of me rambling the way I do about these records as me trying to say, please be careful with your mental health. Please don't romanticize any of this stuff. Me or anybody else. I remember reading books, you know, Marilyn Manson and Motley Crue and, and all this stuff. And it's, it's sold as sexy to us. It's sold as romantic. But being able to make music is awesome. And it shouldn't be taken lightly. But it's not as important as your mental health or your family. So please take all of this with a grain of salt. And remember to take care of yourself during this very trying time. I don't know what else to say. Suck it. This is Dev. Dev out. <laughs>